If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. So today I have America's most in-demand wellness expert, speaker of the year, and the most interesting man in the world, Mr. Dan Miller. (laughs) I leave that intro. I don't know about an interesting man in the world, but <laughs> well, we'll 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 let we'll let the people decide if that's the case. Right, all right, 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 right. All right. So before we get into a lot of stuff that we were uh, talking before before we started uh, recording, uh, I have a question: Why 113? Well, I've modified that number, so uh, <laughs> let's go. Let's go back to one thirteen. I've got right. that to one thirty. So okay. the new website updates are coming this week, and uh, one thirty very specifically for an, another reason. But one thirteen, I figured, you know, I watched my dad die at fifty six, mm-hmm. and uh, I was in my twenties. My dad dies in front of me in the hospital, suffocates to death from lung cancer, and I thought, well, I should make it at least double that because it doesn't make logical sense to die in our fifties. Not knowing what we know about health and wellness today. So I thought, okay, 112, but I'll add a year for extra measure. So I came up with 113. And then after getting some platelet-rich plasma jacked into my thumb joints on both hands and having my arthritis be gone for the last year, it's it's just gone, doesn't exist anymore. And uh, I thought, well, God, if we can do that with just PRP... And I know what's coming. I mean, I've got two torn meniscus in my left knee. I'm coming down to San Diego to get some exosomes put in there. Uh, the data with exosomes and, and meniscus repairs is incredible. 
So if I can fix torn and broken stuff this early with the technology we have in 2023, what's going to be possible in 20 years or in 50 years? So I've come up with the number 130 because I took the age at which my dad died and the age at which my mom died. And I said, well, that's my goal. So they mom died at 74, dad died at 56. And so uh, doubling. Yeah. So you're yeah, doing I just that combined together, age. Yeah. And, and why not? I mean, if you look at what some of the geneticists and longevity guys uh, are saying and gals, uh, I'm thinking the work of David Sinclair out of Harvard and Liz Blackburn out of uh, out of Southern California and Walter Longo down there at the Salk Institute. They're all saying 110, 120 should be average. I don't want to shoot for average. And we don't know what's going to happen in in health and some of the other things we can we can use for the body to heal itself. I mean, uh, the folks in Sinclair's lab have just come up with some really cool uh, new information, relatively new information, and in how they're looking at cell signaling being a co- primary drive, driver of aging. And we can change the signaling in the cells by doing something to reverse or, or have them talk differently and give them new information. Uh, then we can pretty much from from what it looks like, reverse the aging process completely. Yeah, no, well, I, that's I happening agree. Now, yeah. I mean, I'm only 52. I got 78 more years. I'm thinking 130 might be a low number. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. It's And it's not just about how long you live. It's the quality of life. So, and, yeah. and, and I, love, I love how Sinclair starts talking about aging as a, as a dis-ease. And we can reverse any dis-ease. It's not just about the number of how long you live, but what can we do about the quality of life? And you mentioned a, a, a lot of those things. Uh, and then uh, and then understanding, you know, he talks about sirtuins and all these other things uh, that are impacting aging. And cell signaling is definitely a big part of it, especially if we understand our genetic predispositions being individuals and understand how we can control the epigenetic expression of that lifestyle, that knowledge becomes power. And we can actually reverse a lot of these things that a lot of times, you know, our parents, they were in the dark. They didn't know that stuff. What yeah. I'm turning things on that I didn't need to be turning on without the knowledge that you have that. Yeah. And you know, it's, I always tell people if you're using knowledge from the 1950s and you're talking about it today as as gospel truth, then we need to just get you reading more. You know, I, I hear everything from breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which is the thank you to Kellogg's. Uh, that people still believe that as the gospel truth, like nothing will change their mind. And that's not necessarily the truth. And, and they just believe it because that's what they've known their whole time. And the same is the the whole lie of I deal with this all the time with my executive clients as well. It runs in my family. Like n- nobody runs in your family. That's why disease <laughs> runs in your families because nobody's running in your family. That's the problem. <laughs> but then I tell them, go, go get a DNA test so you can stop using that convenient excuse. And maybe you find that it's not there anyway. Or uh, maybe you find that that something is there and you better pay special attention to it instead of just Let's hope and see how things go. It's the worst strategy ever. Yeah, I, I love that other one. Milk does the body good. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some funny <laughs> stories about, about uh, how that came about and, and what happened to generate that ad campaign. And I was just watching a YouTube video on uh, the fact that there's 1.5 billion pounds of cheese held in underground bunkers here in the United States. That's that's going to be the new uh, gold standard. 
We're, we're getting off the gold standard. We're getting the cheese standard. I'm gonna have to have the cheese. It's all in bunkered <laughs> exactly. ground. I just think that's hilarious. Like, all right. So let, let me let me go back before we get into uh, we we sort of jumped into, it, but I want to go back and learn a little bit more about you. So where yeah. did you grow up? Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay, and yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know a lot of people from North Dakota. I don't uh, so don't <laughs> probably not. <laughs> t- only- tell me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Like uh, your your parents were, or uh, do you have siblings? Were your parents together? Uh, yeah. Before? So I grew up. Um, I was always the nerdy kid, right? Straight A since birth. Uh, got beat up a lot. Yeah, because the nerdy kid with a smart mouth that doesn't play football in North Dakota tends to get picked on quite a bit. Um, so it's just me and my brother. He's a year, three months, 12 days, and eight hours older than I am. Not that we've ever counted. Uh, and, and mom was stay-at-home mom. She was she went right from working on the farm to being a mom. Uh, dad worked sometimes two jobs. A lot of the time he worked two jobs. Uh, dad was an alcoholic, and he also uh, had a cigarette problem. So that's what led to his death at 56 was alcohol and smoking. But dad was the funny drunk. So like it was okay when he was drinking because he was always kind of funny. He was, he was kind of mean when he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't drunk. So we liked him drunk. And he was a fun drinking buddy when we were teenagers because he'd, he'd buy all the all the alcohol for the party. And that was cool until he died when I was in my 20s and it wasn't cool anymore. So yeah. uh, but I so I grew up in North Dakota. I started martial arts when I was 12 because I just, you know, Bruce Lee was cool and Chuck Norris was cool and they were all on the big screen. And I was kind of sick of getting picked on. And we found a, a pretty darn good school. Uh, for being in the middle of North Dakota. Of course, it wasn't a jujitsu school back in the 80s. It was a taekwondo school. So it started training, um, kind of fell in love with that a lot, uh, leaned into that. By the time I was 13, I was training four hours a day, five days, six days a week, depending if it was summer or winter. Um, trained in that, went to school, just you know, normal stuff. Uh, went to Finished a couple of years of college while I was in high school. Went to... Uh, North Dakota State University in Fargo, North Dakota, my first year of college. Uh, between high school and college, I was at Argonne National Lab in Chicago making superconductors. Because if, if anyone's wondering what nerds do in the summer, that's what nerds do in the summer. Um, and then I uh, ended up dropping out of school, came back to North Dakota. Um, mom ended up homeless after dad left. He had a, just had enough, just picked up his stuff, took all their money out of the bank account and just left. Um, so my brother and I were, were here in North Dakota and Bismarck helping mom out and, and living with her and, and then, you know, just fell into that whole work trap, but I was working two jobs at the time. So 65, 75 hours a week and, uh, did that for a decade before I went back and did anything else. Yeah. When I think of, uh, yeah, definitely Fargo comes to mind when yep. you think about North Dakota, obviously. That's what most people think of. Yeah. Yeah. The, and cold and gray and. All that stuff. Cold, cold and gross. If I showed you out <laughs> either one of these windows over my shoulder, it is. Uh, we're supposed to get fifty-five mile an hour winds with fourteen inches of snow tonight. So see, and, and we're complaining that it's fifty-nine degrees in LA. It's cold. I was going to go hike today, but maybe it's a little too cold for me to go hiking, and it's windy. <laughs> yeah, we'll have fifty-five miles an hour with uh, fourteen inches on the ground. Yeah. Well, I'm from Philly, but so I'm used to like it's not the same cold, but. When I moved to LA, like the blood thing, I don't know, it changes. Even 60 degrees feels different than it does in, in Philly. It feels colder in LA for some reason. Yeah, because you're me. not you're no longer cold adapted, right? Yeah. 
Because when we come out of spring, it'll be spring here. It'll be 40 degrees and we'll have short sleeves and no coat. And if I went from, if I'm in Mexico for two months and then I, and then it hits 40, I'm certainly not wearing short sleeves that day. I'm going to have yeah. two jackets on because that's going to be freezing. So uh, what was, how did you get interested in health? Like I understand martial arts. I, I, I did that uh, for a while too. Uh, and I got tired of getting beat up by the, uh, by the sensei and discovered girls. So I was, I was way too, uh, too busy focusing on that and, uh, you know, being made an example of in front of the class and walking around with black and blues. So uh, how, how did you get in, in interested in actual health? Well, I always been kind of interested, but not really, but kind of right. I was always fit and healthy. I was, you, you know, if you're, if you're training to be the best martial artist that you can be, you're going to be interested in staying healthy along the way. At least I would suspect that most would. it wasn't a hobby for me. It was, I, you know, my goal was to be an Olympic Taekwondo player. And, uh, you know, this is in early or mid 19, late 1980s, you know, when Taekwondo first hit the Olympics, I, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to get my head beat in by strangers and, and do that professionally. G- good thing things didn't work out for me that way. But so I'd always been kind of involved in health, but really not watching what I was eating, not pouring myself into to what I'm doing now. Uh, somewhere along the lines, after I got my first master's degree, I got hired by a pharmaceutical company. And that really got me back re-curious about biology and chemistry and some of the things that I'd kind of left. I, my original degree when I went to college was organic chemistry at uh, North Dakota State. And I was going to, I was on a fast track to finish a four-year degree very quickly there. And, uh, you know, it didn't work out that way. But when I, when I re-engaged in, in being curious about that would probably be when I was with the pharmaceutical company, they put you through the first one or two years of med school with the training that they do with you. It's very extensive. It's very hard. And, um, then I got curious about the human body and some of the things we can do with it. Never really did anything with it uh, outside of the pharmaceutical industry. I ended up leaving that industry to do other things. And um, I found myself getting more and more re-curious about this when I was in my early 40s, so about a decade ago. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go and get my nutrition certification because somebody had suggested that I go do that. They they thought, well, gosh, you're a really good martial arts instructor. I've been teaching, you know, some basic training type programs for, for folks, these 12-week programs that we put together, just showing them the basics of self-defense and you know, drawing some of that, some of the Taekwondo and some Krav Maga and a little bit of jujitsu in there to kind of round out, okay, this is, I think, the basics that people should learn, at least how to throw a punch, how to throw a basic kick. Mm how that stuff's not going to do you any good if you only train for 12 weeks and you have to make that more of a habit. And, um, and I, I kind of got re-engaged in, in health and wellness when, uh, Mark McDonald, he's the guy that founded Venice nutrition out at gold's gym in, in Venice beach. Uh, Mark said, God, you should be teaching nutrition. And he'd already been a New York times bestselling author when he told me that I'm like, well, this guy's doing this and he's telling me I should do it. So I should probably look at getting certified. So I went through, a whole bunch of certification for my nutrition certification program. And then I happened to just be sitting in a meeting with someone one day and they said, what do you do? I didn't want to tell them what I really did because that job was boring to me. So I told them I'm a nutrition coach and they said, you should come talk to my group. That was nine years ago and I did it full time. So I just made a, made a career out of saying yes to everything. 
I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. it's very similar to uh, my my trajectory too. I, I want to get an understanding. Like, is eating right? Is that the role of nutrition and health? Is just eating right, uh, putting the right kind of food in your body, or, or what does that even mean? Well, and that's a it's that's a complicated question because it's uh, geographically dependent the way I look at the world. So eating right is going to mean something different if you live in northern Iceland, uh, something completely different if you live in the jungle of Costa Rica. And even in Costa Rica, if you live in the jungle versus on the ocean, um, really, it's it's going to be radically different depending on where we live. So, and I think when people approach, well, this is nutrition and this is what you need to do. Here are all the studies you need to know. You have to be a vegan. Or now we've got the folks saying you have to be a carnivore. Well, I can't very well tell people they have to be a vegan if they live above the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Good luck. I mean, it's just the carbon footprint to get them vegetables and fruit above the Arctic Circle would be worse for the planet than them just harvesting whatever fish and animals that they can find up there. Just like I can't tell somebody they should be a solid carnivore if they live in a place where there's bananas everywhere around them and there's all kinds of plants available to eat. Mm-hmm. So I think I look at my role with with nutrition now and think I just got to slap the hamburgers out of people's hands every now and again. Let them know it's okay to eat those things. It's just they have to start keeping track of when they're having those ridiculous meals, like a whole pan of brownies because they're in California and the brownies have weed in them. like. <laughs> It, how? When's the last time they did something like that? And are they doing it too frequently? And in the middle of when they're eating regular food or what I call appropriate food, it would just be, let's focus on plants. Let's eat some animals. Let's try to go local, seasonal, and as organic as we can afford. And then we're good. And I just guide them through that process now. I don't look at macronutrient counting or micronutrient counting unless I'm dealing with somebody who's getting paid to use their body. Then we need to really start breaking down macronutrient, macronutrient, macronutrient consumption, timing of meals, and make sure we're not uh, missing any micronutrients along the way. For the average person, I think it's overkill. It wears them out. They're putting too much mental effort into what they eat if they're doing that for, for most people. So like Dr. Gundry uh, talks mm-hmm. about lectin and then he talks about something similar to what you brought up, but you know, for, with my, with my lack of understanding, I think what he's saying is that based on your genealogy, there are certain foods that are more aligned with you than others. So, right. you know, we, we have this generality about, well, I mean, it goes back to the food pyramid, which we know is, is a bunch of nonsense uh, yeah. anyway. But then then we, we yeah, because they're saying cereals and breads, really, that's what you want to eat uh, all the time. OK, uh, but but then. You know, you mentioned living in certain types of climates. We have these blue zones that we keep trying to replicate. Well, what is it? But maybe it's not just what they eat in that area. Maybe it's a whole bunch of other things that are going on. But if I'm in California, you know, the in LA, everybody's like, oh, uh, don't eat meat and you should be a vegan. By the way, I don't eat meat just for the record, but I eat fish. And this is just because of uh, I don't have access to what I feel is antibiotic-free uh, meat. Uh, even though if I buy organic, I'm still not sure it doesn't have antibiotics in it. But is it is it a whole thing about where your ancestry comes from and then where you currently reside? What type of foods are more aligned with you, what you should be eating? Is it, Or is it something different than that? 
Well, I think there's always going to be a little bit of the genetic component, right? Because if you're coming from a place where they typically, where they had different foods and you come to a place where the foods are completely different, you're going to have a different reaction. You might have some gene coding that way. I mean, you, and you know, as well as anyone, you can test for those. So let's see if there's some food sensitivities in there when, when we're looking at the DNA. But what I really encourage people to do is not, I mean, I don't need to get your blood type to tell you what to eat. I need to know where you live and what month it is. Then I can tell you what would be best serving you. Like if I if you live here in North Dakota and it's January, it's negative 30 degrees. That's 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit without the wind some days. Do you think I'm going to be that that the best thing for me to eat would be stuff that had to be shipped here from from uh, equatorial countries or would the best thing for me to eat be whatever I can hunt outside or fish for outside? So I rotate my diet seasonally based on the fact that I live here and Interesting. as locally as, as possible. And if I can't get it locally, good quality, then I'll find somebody who's doing good, high quality uh, meats and fish or I go get it myself. That's a way to do it as well. Uh, in, in the summer, I'm much higher carbohydrates, much lower fat. In the winter, I'm much higher fat, much lower carbohydrates. I still, I, it's not like I leave carbs out. I just eat radically different carbohydrates right. in the winter than I do in the summer. So, so, so when you travel, yeah. do you modify your your diet uh, when you travel? I have to, but I, but I try to keep it whatever month I'm in, I eat the same way. So if I go to California, I'll eat the same way I'm eating right now here. Um, just because I'm not there long enough to to make an impact. Interesting. So, but I have to modify it slightly. I can't. I, I mean, there's there's just no way I can eat elk when I'm traveling. Yeah, you're not going to hunt in uh, elk, for elk in LA. No, it's weird. There, I haven't <laughs> seen any. No bears either. There's just it's weird. It's almost like all the food in LA has to come from a store or something. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's plenty of uh, wild animals in, in LA. So, so Gundry, I mean, he, he he has some good points, right? Lectins and phytates; these are the plants' uh, teeth and claws, if you will. That's that's how I heard it described. I don't know if he was describing it that way or somebody else else was. But some plants defend themselves because they don't want you eating their reproductive organs. That's not good for the species. Um, so plants will defend themselves as much as animals will. I think some things that might have gotten missed there is that our ancestors, when they were cooking those plants that are high phytate or high lectin, uh, they cooked them differently. Uh, you know, they would soak the beans for five days, drain that water yeah. three times a day. And then that soaking and draining and soaking and draining would get most of the phytates or lectins out of the plant. And then they would cook them slowly over the course of a day. And that slow cooking uh, very, very well would would do the trick. Well, we have the option to do that here. It's called a pressure cooker. Just stick your beans in a pressure cooker and voila, you're not going to have as big of a problem. So, and you know, and but I think it's important to say, well, am I reacting to this food? A lot of people don't know if they're reacting to food. You know, 70% of the world's population is lactose intolerant by age 25. Yet I don't think 70% of the people I've ever met just give up milk for a month to see what happens. I don't know why not, but, yeah. you know, but again, you can test it. It's 2023, not 1953. We don't have to guess. We can just, let's go get a test. Yeah. You can definitely tell genetically if you have, uh, you know, enzymes uh, that are 
not present for metabolizing lactose or gluten. Now, not oh, saying celiac. No, yeah. that's a different thing. But if you're if you're having an inflammatory response to the food that you're consuming, that's something you can look at. And also microbiome uh, testing. You can see which microbiome is specific for that. Uh, there's just, I think what happens is there's so much out there. It's very difficult for people to understand. What do I do? What do I take? What's the test? Uh, do I take 300 different tests? How do you qualify? So like in, in when, when you're actually training people, do you have, you know, your standard tool belt? Like this is, this is your go-to thing that you suggest for people to consume. And if so, what is that? To consume? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm uh, to test. What's, or to what's, test. Yeah. yeah, to test. Consumption is the consumption is easy too. I can tell you the go to there. But for the test, I always start with. Look, you get a play for about a hundred years in this suit made out of meat and water. This is a giant bag of slow moving wet meat that just globs around on the surface of the planet. We're the slowest moving animal on the planet. Uh, and somebody's going to hear this and go, uh, uh, like, yeah, you are. Go out and catch something with bare hands. I want to watch. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, we have thumbs and tools because that kind of evens the score out there. But we get to play for about 100 years in this thing, 100-ish, maybe 120. If we're really lucky, maybe longer than that. And you're playing with a, oh, you're playing this game with a hand of cards that mom and dad dealt you. So they dealt you a hand of cards, 21,000 base pairs of cards. Those are the hand of cards you get to play with. You can't change your cards, but you can change how you're playing with them based on the environment you're playing in. And that means everything from the thoughts that you think to the to what you decide to drink today to the food you put on your plate. Those are all ways your DNA responds to the environment. So I can change the way I play the cards based on what I do. And, and that's good news because that means even if mom and dad dealt me garbage, and I have some garbage in my sleep genes, uh, I have, I think, three or four that don't allow me to get good deep sleep. Like I'm cheering because I got 45 minutes uh, of deep sleep last night. I think it was 11%. It's not enough, but that's a really good day for me because the other day I got 22 minutes. Five percent of my night was so I'm one of those guys that needs lots of sleep. I need nine, nine and a half hours to feel relaxed and rested and ready for the day. Not only because of, you know we put in a lot of work in the gym because of what we're training for later in the year, but we're also I I suck at sleep. And I was handed those by mom and dad. I can't change my parents. I don't have that DeLorean. Uh, if I did have that kind of DeLorean, I would certainly go back and change them uh, and get better genes. <laughs> but I mean, I'm lucky because I have pretty good genes. I don't have a lot of stuff that's going to wreck me later in life, but I have some stuff that I got that's nonsense. So the first test I ask people to take is, damn it, let's get a DNA test because I have to know, you have to know, so that you can go talk to your doctor, are you playing with garbage? And do you have some leanings towards horrible stuff coming up in your future? And do you need to lean heavily the other way? Or what... Can you eat a little bit of bread and not have it affect you? Or should you stay away from bread altogether? That's all locked up in our genetic coding. We have to know what cards we're playing with. And then there's just a list of blood tests. I always tell people, if you're working with me, we're also going to be working with a physician because we need the physician for the test and we need some guidance on some of the things. But there's a whole host of tests. I don't want to go through that giant list, but yeah. there's a, a whole bunch of things. The basics are, let's see what cards you're playing with. And let's see if there's stuff in there we need to be concerned about right off the bat. 
and then let's build food, movement, sleep, social structure. That's one thing people don't remember about all these blue zones uh, is that the social structure in those areas is tight, very yeah. tight. Uh, in America, the average person has eight friends. Somebody's listening to this going, who has eight friends? Yeah, but <laughs> one friend. <laughs> well, so I think it's eight friends and 1.3 best friends. I want to meet the 0.3. I don't know how they split that person <laughs> up, but that's the statistic. Well, if that's the case, and we go to the blue zones, those folks don't have eight friends. They have a community of people that all know their name, that they can greet every day, that they go socialize with. No one ever takes that into account for their longevity. And when you do look at some of the top longevity experts, you can even look at uh, Dr. Peter Atia's new book. Uh, every single person out there talking about lifespan and health span and getting us to live longer, healthier, talks about community. But it's not something that we hear on the news. It's not something that's that's really in fashion to write about because nobody makes any money if you just go get a tighter community around you. Now, you're so 100% right. And, and yeah, you're right. Peter Atias and, and Mark Hyman, they're, they're all talking about community. And, and I bet you, if you look at the blue zones, the amount of antidepressants that are being prescribed in those are probably zero to next yeah. to zero. And yeah. if we start looking at pharmaceuticals and, and this, the mental health state, that actually affects your physical health so much that people really underestimate the, your, your, um, immunal response to certain things. Cortisol level uh, is up. Your auto, your, your immune system overreacts to that. You have inflammation. That inflammation flips on other uh, switches. So this is something that we don't really talk about much. We we talk about how we can, you know, food and all these other things. But that mental health really, really, really dictates a lot of your physical health. And I wanted to ask you. I think I read somewhere where you were talking about disease versus disorder. And I wanted to see if you can maybe give a, an explanation of the difference between what well, disease and disorder. Well, the way we look at health and wellness is we look at healthcare as doctors and hospitals and clinics. That's healthcare to us. That's not healthcare. That's sick care. If something's broken, if you're going to a clinic or you're going there to get some tests done, which is great. If you're going to the doctor and you're using them because you're curious, I love that. I love that kind of doctoring, right? And there's a bunch of... Uh, quasi-concierge uh, places popping up all over the place where, where you can go and have a subscription model so you can go get blood tests way more regularly and it's just part of your regular subscription. Those are popping up all over the country. Um, a lot of the clients I work with have concierge doctors or they'll have a doctor on staff at work because they have enough people to to make that happen. If they're self-funded in their insurance, that's a really good idea to have a doctor on staff. What we're finding is that a lot of folks think that's health is going to the doctor and getting drugs. And what happens, the way I look at the world is something is in disorder in the body that's causing the disease. There's a root cause to just about all the diseases, especially if we look at diseases of modern society. And I use my parents all the time as an example. Dad died of lung cancer. Well, let's see, what could have the root cause have been? And do we need another ribbon on our bodies to say, well, we got to be pay attention to lung cancer. We have to create awareness. Dad smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and was a raging alcoholic. Hmm. Well, I think we found the root cause. But why would he do those things? Uh, maybe it's what happened when he was in the army, uh, yeah. right around the time Vietnam was going on. Maybe it's the way he grew up. I think he had two other siblings. 
that committed suicide. My dad committed suicide over 20 or 30 years with alcohol and cigarettes. It's no different. Something was going wrong in the community aspect of things that drove him to make those decisions. And those decisions caused the, the disorder. The disorder caused the disease. My mom drank two liters of soda a day. She drank uh, soda and coffee. I don't think she ever drank water when I knew her. And never exercised, never ate right, ate french fries every day. And then she died of seven diseases at 74. Never exercised, never ate right, never read a book, stayed up late every night, wrecked her sleep, drank sugar all day long, and fried foods. Yeah, you're going to die at 74. I think we found the cause of most of those problems or the exacerbations of most of those problems, right? So I do pretty well for myself, and I started having arthritis in my thumbs. Probably genetic, right? 52 years old, started having some... Because I eat very, very well. I exercise very, very regularly. I do all the things I ask my clients to do. Sometimes we can't fight all of it, but we can do certain things uh, when the disorder happens. So the disease would be called arthritis, but what's causing it? What, yeah. Where's the disorder happening? Gosh, you know, the last three years, Len, I've been reading uh, study after study after study on PubMed about uh, our endogenous uh, cannabinoid system and how we make our own. And maybe there's disorder in that. So in that disorder in that system, good luck to you because it's causing disruptions everywhere else in the body. A hundred percent. I'm a huge fan of modern medicine. We need the doctors. We need them to run the tests. We need them to understand the body at a deeper level than I will ever want to. We also need them for some prescriptions if they're transient. If we're looking at this as, okay, this thing is going to help get the swelling down so my body can heal Let's let's maybe embrace that. Yeah, I I love that. It's such a great yeah. description of uh, you know what is the root cause that we don't look at, and, and doctors are so used to you know oh it hurts let me stick a needle let me give you a pill for that and I'm really looking at, at the root cause. You brought up something interesting because and I'll use my mom as an example. So my dad had a heart scare. I don't know twenty years ago. He used to smoke cigarettes. He quit. And change the way he eats and everything, and he's uh, he's healthy and you know relatively knock on wood, not not a lot of medication. My parents are both healthy. My mom smokes cigarettes, doesn't eat well, but she's always pointing to the outliers. See this woman? She smoked cigarettes till she was George Burns smoked until he was a hundred. But that's an outlier. So it's not oh you know I I smoke cigarettes and look at the ninety nine percent. Of the people that cigarettes affect, I'm just focusing on the one. Look at that. That person lived to 100 something by smoking cigarettes. So, yeah. you know, I'm trying to see if I can motivate her, but I think you hit the nail on the head. There, there is a reason for this. Yes, it's a habit for me. Yes, they're dependent on it. Yes, the coffee and the cigarette go together. All that stuff makes sense, but uh, there's got to be. There's got to be something that you can kind of point to to kind of get them to start shifting away from that because yeah. not everybody's an outlier. You know, I always, well, here's the thing on outliers. I mean, maybe those people are rich in stem cells. I don't think we've gone back and exhumed the bodies to see if they're stem cell rich. Let's look at their right. DNA and see if they have ridiculous amounts of stem cells that healed all the damage as they were hurting themselves. How much longer could have they lived if they lived a different timeline? Right. Exactly. And, and sadly, we don't get to live that, but. As far as the the what's the root cause of wanting to start smoking in the first place, a lot of people point to the fact that it's stress. 
But that's people think that's normal. That's not our default state. Stress is not our regular state. It is when we're locked in cages alone all day, though. I mean, Len, here's a thought experiment I always ask people to do. Let's take a look at what we would be doing if we just flip back 2,000 years ago and we lived right here. So 2,000 years is nothing in the grand scheme of humans. We've been around in one shape or form or another for a couple million years, about 800,000 looking sort of like we do now, uh, maybe with tougher claws and more hair, but kind of like we do now as far as our skeletal structure. If I go back just 2,000 years and I live right here where I live and you lived where you live, we would be doing some very important things. Number one, we would be outside. That's really important to remember. Most of our lives were spent outside. And how do we feel when we're outside today? If I just ask the average person that's listening to your podcast, go outside with your family on a hike or go fly fishing. And if the fish are biting, how do you feel? Because the answers I get when I pull people are good, healthy, calm, relaxed, peaceful. That's our default state. That's humans back outside. That was us just a couple thousand years ago. We also had a community of people surrounding us. So if we did encounter a bear or a mountain lion or a rogue elk trying to stab us with the swords coming out of its head, we would have a group of people to help keep us safe. If a warring community came through and they wanted to fight us, we would have a group of people helping. In stressful events, we always had a team. We knew that being alone outside was deadly. That's why we fear that so much today. We knew that for millions of years, just a couple thousand years ago. We were outside all day, moving a ton with a big group of people that we relied on for survival and who loved having us there and they needed us there. We were included in something bigger than ourselves and we were doing stuff outside, moving a lot. Stress only happened when there was a rogue bear or mountain lion. Otherwise, life wasn't so bad, right? Granted, if you twisted your ankle, you died in your 30s. So it sucked compared to what we're used to. But if I take that person and I shove them into today's world, if I just fast forward 2,000 years and go right here, what would we expect if we did that to deer? Let's take a deer from outside, out of the herd, shove it in a cage all day, Make it worry about its credit score all day long. I want to watch a deer worry about a credit score. Make make sure it has no social support and it can't go outside where it wants to go. And then give it a, a fridge full of food and a cabinet full of drugs. What do we think is going to happen? I mean, if we did that to any other animal, we think it's going to get anxious, it's going to get depressed, it's going to get sad, it's going to start to self harm. We know that's going to happen. We can do that to beavers or lions. It's going to happen to any animal we do that with. We've done that to humans, but because we've done it a little slower, we don't think it's having the same effect. And if you look at mental health in this country, we suck something awful. And the solution might just be grab some friends, go the fuck back outside where you belong, and move. Because yeah, we- yeah. The new studies on movement show that that's probably one of the most powerful antidepressants on the planet. They're comparing the results in movement studies against the results of drugs like SSRIs, and they're showing it's far superior. I, I com- couldn't agree more because I took a class uh, on flow uh, from Stephen yeah. Toddler. Yeah. And, and when you have flow triggers, you can actually 
prime yourself for flow state when you understand. So we're not just talking about, do I feel better? You can measure it. You can measure your neurochemistry and get right to the point of optimizing your own personal neurochemistry. It's different for different people. Like for me, it was hiking. Like being outside and hiking and extending yourself to the point of, I'm just extending myself a little bit, not, I'm not like base jumping where I'm like, oh shit, this is something that's outside of my comfort zone, way outside of my comfort zone. But being a little bit outside of my comfort zone, you know, yes, there are rattlesnakes there. Okay, yeah, there's a fear and I have to be careful. But man, that is my optimal state. The, the challenge with this is how do I get my mom, and I'm using her as an example of the other thousands and thousands of people that are sitting there in comfort. And in yeah. order for them to get out of their comfort, they have to do something, take action. So you have to be able to put something there to pull them out of their comfort zone because they are so, you know, I'm going to get out of the chair a little. Ah, you know what? I I'm, feel it's much better right here. Look at that. I got a great TV here. I got yeah. my cigarette. I got this and that. It's comfortable. My life is comfortable. I want to be comfortable. But it really isn't because you're really hurting yourself. So it's that motivation. I'm trying to figure out how to get people to move like you're saying. Well, so let me go back to why that happens and why that happens with more than just your mom, why it happens with almost everyone in the country. And I always go back to how we were programmed, right? Because if we just look at ourselves as an animal, we have to realize that when we lived outside, all animals have the same two biological imperatives. And there's really only two giant ones, right? Biological box number one that I must check every day is stay alive. I have to, and so that means I have to find food. I have to uh, fend off any predators. Usually I did both of those as a group. And then I have to build some sort of shelter and drink some water, right? So staying alive is our primary box. You got to check that box every day. When I look at Americans, because of the country we live in, and, and anyone listening can just think about this, how easy is it to check off box number one? Yeah. My life hasn't been in danger at all this week. And I flew, right? And I'm going to fly again. I'm in airplanes and my life's not in danger. Like it's so safe here for the most part. Okay. I get it. Some people are cops. Some people are soldiers. And there's some people that take guns into schools. Okay. But for the most part, we're so damn safe. So box one is pretty easy for most people. There's only one other box and that's make new people. And that's the only other primary drive. If I always tell people, you don't see lions doing CrossFit ever. You don't go into <laughs> nature and watch a lion doing a CrossFit competition because box one and box two are checked every damn day for a lion. You mate when you want to mate, and it's pretty damn easy to stay alive when nothing hunts you except humans, yeah. right? So do we have box number two checked most of the time when we're living in these little communities? If, if we're in a paired relationship, with a willing partner, or we have a great Tinder profile, well, then damn it, box two is easy too. So if I check both of those boxes, nature has programmed us to conserve movement at all costs. If there's food, shove it in there and don't move. That's humans. That's your dog. That's every animal on the planet. The only reason you ever see a deer running is because something's chasing or, or it's running towards a mate. Otherwise, it's just wandering around getting its food or lying down taking a nap. Well, that's us too. So the motivation to get off the couch, the way we're programmed is zero. So if we don't train for something, 
right? Michael Easter talks about this in his book, The Comfort Crisis. I love that book. It's one of my favorite books in the last couple of years. So he talks about set a goal, train for something. So you have to go do the things that make you fitter and stronger and smarter because you're training for something. Or you have to surround yourself with people that'll stop tolerating your bullshit laying on the couch behavior. If we don't enact social pressure, which is what we had for millions of years, it was called living outside in a group. If we don't go back to enacting social pressure and not tolerating that nonsense, we have to do that because otherwise our motivation is next to nothing. It is very, very hard. You find the people like Jocko that are out there up at 4.30 in the morning. They don't, yeah. He doesn't have to be. So, it, But that self-motivation is incredibly rare. And I yeah. find it in myself. You find it too. I mean, how easy is it to just turn on Family Guy and watch 16 episodes in a row while you're shoving Doritos in your mouth? I mean, it's- Yeah, but this is, this is my reward. See, this, yeah. you're absolutely right. I do that too. Uh, with, with the exception of Doritos, but the Family Guy absolutely smoke a joint, uh, watch Family Guy is the best. But that's my reward because I did the things that I said I'm going to motivate myself to do, which is right. hike, go to the gym, eat all those things that you mentioned, and then I'm going to give myself that carrot at the end. That's that's yeah. my reward. But I'm not going to do it in lieu of. Uh, but yeah, that's I think I think my my dad basically gave up on my mom already it's like it's just easier to like leave her be why so she can watch uh, you know the the uh the uh mexican soap operas or whatever she yeah. sits there watching all right so i'm going to try to establish the fact of you being one of the most interesting men in the world let me see if i can try to do this so uh motorcycle uh rider right? you ride a, a motorcycle uh scuba diving and you can talk about your uh, scuba diving uh, experiences that you've had. I, I find some of that interesting. But also, if I'm correct, endurance Guinness World Book of Records on a treadmill for 48 straight hours. Are, are you trying to catch up to Goggins? Is that is that what you're doing? Yeah. So <laughs> this, this was 20 years ago. I was working at a sporting goods retailer as their fitness manager. And I read the back of the catalog that said, this guy in Europe had been on this treadmill for two straight days. The treadmill was bragging about how tough their treadmills are. Look, they run for two straight days. If they're tough enough for this guy, you should buy one of them, right? That was their whole pitch. And I read that and I thought something and I thought I was thinking it, but I actually sadly used my outside voice instead of my inside voice. (laughs) I thought, well, I could do that. And enough people heard me that that one of them said, you couldn't do that if you tried. And that just pissed me off just enough to pick up <laughs> the phone that day uh, and make a phone call and say, you know, I want two custom calibrated treadmills sent up to Bismarck, North Dakota. I'm doing a world record. I didn't say I'm doing an attempt. I said, I'm breaking a world record. And then I said, it's going to be in March. Uh, I had three months to be prepared. Now, mm-hmm. it's important to note that I was a runner for three months when I said I could break a world record because it didn't seem that hard to me. This was 20 years ago. I was 32 years old. I'd trained for an additional three months. So I was a runner, a real runner, for six whole months when I broke a world record. Uh, That world record did not happen in my body. It all happened up here. And it happened up here because I already told myself I'm going to do it. Hmm. And, And that, I'm just going to do this. It didn't leave an option not to get it done. I broke the world record by two miles. 
Uh, and every single bit of it sucked. And I didn't do it alone. I had a lot of really good people helping. But this was 20 years ago. This is before Facebook, before YouTube, before all of the, the stuff that we have available today. And this is before ultra running was cool. I look at that record now, it's well over double. Um, and it's a treadmill. Those are easy compared to running outside. Uh, so it was fun. It was. I did it because somebody told me I couldn't do it. And I hate being told what I can or can't do. So I did it out of spite. Uh, yeah. And I did it because uh, I just, look, I told myself I could do it. That Paul did it in Europe. His name was Paul yeah. Shields. He did it. I thought I can do that. And I did. I, I, yeah, I, I love the whole notion of it's it's already done. Right, that you believe it, it's done, and now you just have to, you know, follow the footsteps. But it's done in your head. So you have this new number of one thirty. Um, riding a motorcycle is pretty risky, right? It's uh, calculated. But that's that's where I'm going. So you yeah, know, riding scuba diving. I and I, I don't want to have the time to tell you about my scuba diving experience last time in Mexico that I was running out of air and I lost a boat and I didn't have a partner with me. So there's a danger to it is what I'm saying. Yeah. And then you have people like, uh, you know, I think one of the hardest people in the world, mental, uh, hard and physical as David Goggins, I just brought him up, but he beats the shit out of his body. I mean, yeah. man, his latest book that he wrote, uh, 240 mile marathons and and ripping up his knees and and surgeries and and, and the stuff that he goes through, I, I get it for for health and wellness, but there's got to be some sort of balance if you're if you're beating yourself up and you're taking all these risks and as you said calculated, uh, where is that delta? Like, what's where am I going to take the risk so I can I can actually get my endorphins, get my neurochemicals, you know, challenge myself to that state. And then also live to one thirty, where it becomes, you know, I'm uh, I'm alone in in the jungle with, by myself for weeks, and I'm shooting, you know, the animals there, and maybe I'm taking an unnecessary risk. Yeah, well, I so it's always calculated, and that means something different to to me than it does to somebody who's never been scuba diving. Uh, I like to be in the water with sharks. If there's no sharks in the water, I'm bored out of my mind. But that that again, you know, through exposure and education and surrounding yourself by good people, that's always uh, calculated as well. So it's safe, but on the outside borders. Uh, I don't know if David Goggins is trying to live to one thirty. I, I have yet to meet David, but uh, I think. I think for somebody, if he was trying to target that, that might be excessive with what he, with how bad he beats himself up. Um, I love the guy; he's a great motivator for me. But for someone like me, with the way I'm built, that's even that world record. I'd never do that again, and that wasn't near what he runs. And it was indoors in a temperature controlled environment. So uh, I think we have to look at our own self and say, "Where's my edge?" Uh, and if my edge is running a 5K and walking part of it along the way, then do that. My edge is further out than that. But here's the thing that I like to tell people to teach their kids. Growth doesn't happen in the middle. Growth happens on the outside edges. No. And if you never go to that, we're summiting Kilimanjaro later this year. 43% of the people, I believe, who start that journey never finish. So it has about a 50-50 failure rate. And I like that. I suck at altitude. I live at 1,600 feet. We're going to 19,341. Uh, it's it's going to get weird up there. It's operating at, at half of the amount of regular oxygen in the air. So 
We're training. We're training for six solid months, five, sometimes six days a week just for that event. So I'm going to be the healthiest I've ever been when we embark on that journey. It's risky because 50% of the people either get mountain sickness or they twist something or break something on the side of that uh, nice little hill in Africa. So it's risky, but it's a calculated risk that we're training for. So for some people, that is so far out that they couldn't comprehend doing it. For me, it's just dicey enough on the outside edges that something that it gets me out of that space of always being soft and 70 degrees. Everything in this house is 70 degrees and soft. So (laughs) for some people that might just be, you know what, I'm going to go walk around the block because they don't even do that. Yeah. So, and and I think for me, you know, if I'll eventually give up on the motorcycle, maybe. Um, I don't think I'll ever give up scuba diving, but I'm not going to take unnecessary risks. So, David's been beating his body up for a long time. And look at a guy like Goggins. If I pulled somebody off of the couch that never exercises and I say, go do what that guy's doing, they'd probably die. Yeah. Right? It's- or they wouldn't be able to move. No, you're absolutely right. It's your own edge. That's that's exactly it. We all have our own. And uh, I, I mean, you you said it really eloquently. Um, what do you what do you feel? And you sort of touched on this a little bit. Is the role of phytocannabinoids and other plant medicines in longevity and, yeah. and health span? Well, so I look at the any plants, whether we look at CBD, which is a phytocannabinoid, or if we look at THC, if we look at, you know, name one of the 150, or if I look at the uh, psilocybin coming out of the the cute little mushroom world, or if I look at ibogaine, or if I look at any of the plant medicines, I look at, there's a couple of different reasons we may want to consider these. Let's talk about the the phytocannabinoids from, from cannabis. It's nourishing a system. So a lot of us, we can nourish that system ourselves. There's a great, uh, very, very lengthy article on PubMed called The Care and Feeding of the Endogenous Cannabinoid System. It's a a great uh, published uh, article that's available. You can read the full thing. I like it because it's basically what I teach executives to do in their regular life. Get good sleep. Don't stress out. Drink lots of water. Eat good plant and animal-based foods with the occasional Twinkie over there, right? Not every week. So, you know, and then move your body. And the author of that article talks about how these things would nourish that system, how you can produce certain uh, endogenous cannabinoids that regulate mood and sleep and, and some of the other hormones. We nourish that system through our actions. What I like about the plants is that they nourish that system without me having to do anything. So they can accelerate a spiral for somebody that's already in trouble. And the best example I've ever used is some of my friends with severe lower back pain. You know, you rub a CBD salve on the outside, you take a CBD tincture on the inside, you combine the internal and the external, and suddenly after about two or three weeks or sometimes even two or three days, hey, my back doesn't hurt as bad. Like you and I both know all the multiple reasons what receptors are involved in reducing the inflammation and helping to speed some of the healing. But all of a sudden, my back doesn't hurt so bad. Now I'm sleeping better. And when I sleep better, I have more energy to exercise the next day. So now I start walking more and my back's still not hurting. So I took some plants and I started an upward spiral of health because the plants helped me get through a point where I was stuck. And I look at the role of CBD and CBN and CBG 
as the plants helping us through our actions. They're augmenting the actions or maybe getting us started in the right direction. I look at the role of THC and the some of the other uh, intoxicating cannabinoids or other intoxicating plants like psilocybin and ibogaine and ayahuasca as kind of the anti-fragile curve for us, right? If we look at uh, the the hormetic curve or hormesis or, or anti-fragility, it's us pushing a boundary still inside the safety boundary, but way on the outside edge. This time, not physically, but up here. And when we start looking at ancient cultures where humans were 100,000 years ago, you're going to be hard-pressed to find an ancient tribal culture that didn't use plant medicine to expand spirituality. Mm-hmm. So we can look at everything from peyote to the San Pedro cactus to uh, um, uh, cot and ibogaine and you know whatever other plant you want to name out there. Every single old, old, old culture had some sort of a thing that they would put in from the plant world that would expand this and spiritually or consciously or however we want to look at that. It was the anti-fragile, ritualistic, this is going to open up some new boundaries for us. That's how I look at the role of some of the intoxicating agents. But they must be done if we're using them in today's society. A, we have to make sure we're doing it somewhere where it's legal. That's important so we don't get arrested. Um, B, we have to make sure we're doing it in the right set and setting. So context is important. I'm not using THC to forget my problems. I'm using it to feel weirdly paranoid and become my couch on occasion because that opens up part of my brain that is great that normally wouldn't open up. Yeah. I like them for that. And I I love what you just said, upward upward spiral of, of, uh, of health. Uh, that was great. And, and I agree. And we were talking about you, you speaking at, uh, Dave Asprey's event and we, we need to have the people who are the leaders in a biohacking space. And I, you've been a biohacker before there was such a term, but leaders need to be able to like really start referencing the science. There is a lot of science. What you're talking about is scientifically backed. It's not just and, and, you know, from what I do and what our business, everything is personal. So you have a personal experience and, you know, this, that's what the name of this podcast is. So when somebody's making blanket statements, like, uh, you know, Andrew Huberman, uh, who's talking about, yes, I am in agreement with him about young people who are undeveloped using substances. That's why we have, you know, certain age limits to the use of, uh, of certain substances. However, there are a tremendous amount of benefits to using higher amounts of THC for certain people, for certain conditions. If somebody's in pain and we deal with pancreatic cancer patients who are in tremendous amount of pain, you're going to tell them, hey, you know, take uh, 25 milligrams of CBD and that's it. You shouldn't. No, you want to give them anything that will help them. You know, they give them morphine drips. Why don't we give them some plant medicine to help them as well? So these are the things that really need to be uh, referenced. And, and, you know, Dave Asprey is another one. Yes, THC has a narrow therapeutic window. Yes, it's specific for individuals, but that's that's what we do. We're trying to find out what works for people that won't, you know, challenge them and give them some, uh, mitigate their adverse effects. I wanted to ask you about, cold and, and, and heat uh, yeah. for a second. So I am personally very cold adverse. 
So I've done you know, cold plunges and I, I've, and I hate it. I hate it, but I love the sauna. I can sit in the sauna and sweat while everybody's to, to the point where I'm starting to see stars a little bit. I'm like, all right, now it's time to come out. It's a little bit too much. So is, is there a benefit to doing both? Because here's what I, I read, like in Finland and I'm Lithuanian. So in my, where, when I was a kid, uh, my, I used to have, a, my parents used to have a place in the Pocono mountains. We would go into the sauna, get really hot and then jump in the snow afterwards, then go back in. And in Finland and Scandinavian countries, that's what they do. So this whole notion of ice baths, we're going to all jump in the cold and sit there till, you know, we have walnut balls or in our, in our, th- okay, great. Is, is one better than the other? Is it, is it important to do both? What's your thoughts on that? I would never say one's better than the other, but I'll tell you, uh, they're they're different, but kind of the same, right? In in the heat, we get vasodilation. In the cold, we get vasoconstriction. Uh, in the cold, we get uh, radical increases in, in some of the catecholamines that are going to help with everything from neurotransmission to mood to uh, hunger and sleep later in the day. Uh, in heat, it's going to be a little different. We get some some different chemicals. So I say kind of the same, but different, right? Because one of them is very, very cold. One is very, very hot. Here's what I'll tell somebody that's listening. I prefer the heat, but the fact that I hate the cold, that's why I do the cold. (laughs) Because if I'm averse to it and I know it's going to have benefit, then damn it, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, In May, we'll be going up to Alaska. and, And my goal is to try to get in the coldest water I've ever been in. I'd like to get in the Arctic Ocean. I don't know if there's going to be uh, enough uh, spots in the ice that's open for me to do that. Uh, But that's a goal when I'm up there is uh, I hate the cold. Hate it. I know I live here, but I have gear for to go outside, right? The truck is always warm and there's gear for going outside. But that makes me want to do it even Uh. more. Because I, I was hoping you wouldn't say that, man. Because <laughs> that's the same thing with so, me. I, yeah, yeah, I have to jump in. And, and so that, and that's what I'm talking about at the biohacking conference this year in June. Is uh, I'm doing just about an hour on uh, becoming insanely uncomfortable and what that does for longevity. Because if we look at some of the longevity markers that, and, and some of the reasons why it might extend our health span, not just our lifespan, but how long we're healthy, um, it, it goes back to that principle of killing the weak. Uh, and if you can if you can go in and kill the weak inside of your body, then they're causing less problems because you got rid of some of them. Um, and the problem is we're always 70 degrees and soft. It is literally everywhere I go. If I'm in a cage, it's 68 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit and everything I sit on is soft. That's what we've created. And that's amazing. But what that doesn't do is put any pressure on us. And without that pressure, without the cold pressure or the heat pressure, our weak cells get to live longer than they should. So if we can go in daily, get in the sauna daily, or get just a three-minute freezing cold shower every day, we're putting some additional pressure on the weak. And that's one of the primary things I like talking about, in addition to all of the other benefits, the mood uptick that you get, the the uh, help with hunger and satiety, the fact that you're going to burn extra calories in either hot or cold. You're going to burn calories to cool down or burn calories to heat up. The fact that sweating is one of the best ways to, to fire up a detox pathway to help the body dump some of the heavy metals that might be present. Those are all extra. The main reason I like to do it is because it kills the weak. 
And if weak Dan lays in a puddle in the bottom of a sauna and healthy Dan walks out, well, then healthy Dan gets more resources and gets to live longer with less of that nonsense that weak Dan could have caused. Dude, I love that, man. That's it's such a great way of saying. Um, are your kids also into uh, like health and wellness? Do they, they go with you or what, what's yeah. there? So they're, they're summoning Kilimanjaro uh, this year for sure. And they're both fit and healthy. My goal is always to be faster and stronger than them. I, I don't know. How I'm doing. <laughs> I think I'm doing pretty well so far. Uh, I know I still bench more. Uh, and I'm not sure if I run faster, but I can outrun them distance-wise. So uh, that's always the goal. They're in there. They're 23. Noah is 23 and Mitch is 25. Um, so he'll be 26 in just a couple of days here. So uh, I like I like using them as that's my benchmark because they're, yeah. they're 30 years younger than me. And I want to make sure that I'm operating as though I'm 30 years younger than what I am right now. So yeah, they're you know they've learned a lot of this stuff from me. They've come seen my presentations a couple of times and um, yeah, yeah, they're both. I love that because as well. I mean, it's about shoving information in that maybe the system's not doing so. A hundred percent. Yeah, I have an eighteen-year-old daughter, and uh, uh, Sasha goes with me to the gym, and she does. Like you know, some sometimes kids rebel against what their parents do. Like, yeah. no, I'm going to do the opposite. But I, I'm grateful that. You know, she's uh, she's in the right path too, well, and it feels good, right? Maybe yeah. that's maybe if it didn't feel so good to be fit and healthy, maybe she would rebel against it. But yeah, um, always feels good. Yeah, yeah. but again, you know, there's some social pressure too. We forget that social pressure worked for millions of years, and now we don't have it. Nobody called me today to say, "Hey, you working out?" No one. So I have to, with the people I surround myself with and the goals that I set, that's the pressure I put on is that I'm going to summon a mountain later and I have to be healthy enough to do that. Plus, I'm trying to live to 130. Yeah. I can't. Well, you, need an, you, need, you need an accountability buddy. That's that's the whole thing. You need somebody who's going to hold you accountable if that's the case. Not, not you personally. I'm saying the people yeah. that the people that are, have that, it, it, and that's your sense of community too. If you have an account, I used to... I have a friend of mine who's uh, not not the healthiest uh, sometimes, and I went and got her a membership uh, to the gym, and I would go and drive her every day to go do yoga together. And when I stopped doing it, she stopped doing it altogether. Right. So that yeah. accountability, you need that buddy that goes with you and does that. It pushes you. So uh, Well, and that's why I tell people, hire a coach or hire a trainer. I mean- the clients I work with, they hire me for accountability. I'm not teaching them new stuff. We all know what we're supposed to be doing. Move more with friends outside, eat good plants and animals, drink mostly water. That We all know that, but we don't do it because there's, there's no one holding our feet to the fire telling us to. Well, if I pay somebody 120 bucks an hour and, and, I, and I'm, I'm hiring them three times a week, well, then damn it, I'm going to show up. Accountability so, is key. I tell yeah, people, put your money in the, the accountability because then you'll execute better actions. And once you're on that good path, it's really hard to deviate from that path. I mean, it's easy because the couch is always right there calling, but we feel better, look better, act better, do better. And we're better members for our community when we're fit and healthy. Sometimes we just need to get on that path and hold, have somebody hold us accountable long enough that we start feeling the momentum ourselves. Oh, yeah, 
I so I encourage people, especially if you don't know how to move your body with weight on it, get a trainer so you don't get hurt. And get a trainer and somebody maybe who knows about food because a lot of us are we hire the trainer and it's so we can eat the ice cream. That's not how the world works. <laughs> then you yeah, might that it does, but you'll end up dying in your mid seventies if you keep that up. That's just how the statistics show it. We die in our mid seventies in this country. And accountability is key. Definitely hire a a coach to keep you accountable. I was going to ask you a question that I hate being asked myself, but you sort of kind of just answered it because I was going to ask you for your cheat sheet. Like, give me give me like your top things that somebody if they're listening because everybody wants shortcuts and everything because we we yeah. love shortcuts. What are the most important? Like, here's the things that you should be most aware of. These are the things you need to do in order to stay healthy and live a longer, healthier life? First things first, you have to surround yourself with community and purpose. I, I remind people of four words all the time. This is number one. And if you, you don't even do the rest of them until you have this one established, because you will fall off track. Our society will pull you away and distract you. And if you don't have these four things, don't start. I remind people that for millions of years, every one of our ancestors woke up every morning feeling needed, valued, loved, and important to a group bigger than their family. So find that community first. That's why CrossFit works so well for people because it's a community. That's why Orange Theory works so well for people because they developed a community, right? That's why I tell people... Maybe you don't want to go to the gym, but go to the damn gym and go with friends that are going to keep you motivated to go. The people you surround yourself with are going to dictate what's happening next because you always do what the tribe does. That's just how we've been. That's how we're built. That's how nature or whatever created us designed us for. We do what the people do that we surround ourselves with. That's number one. Number two, if there's a bear in your house, get rid of it quickly with a group of people. And what that means is if you are under stress, get rid of it quickly and enact the help of others to do so. Stress is not your normal state. It should be handled as though it were a bear in your kitchen. It needs to go away and it needs to go away fast and the hell if I'm doing it alone because it's turning on the same primal systems. So number two, stop stressing out all day. It's not normal. Get people to help you eliminate the source of that threat. And the way I look at stress is, I'm going to handle it like our Navy SEALs handled bullets. I'm going in with a team and I'm going to train. Because bullets are easier when there's a bunch of you and you've been training. Right? So that's how we handle stress. If money is a stress, who's helping you with money and how are you educating yourself against money? Because education, training, and teams help that us respond differently. Stress is not the thing. It's how we respond to it. Number three is go the hell to bed, stay there for eight hours. We got to start cleaning up our sleep. Yeah, you'll sleep when you're dead, but you'll be dead earlier if you don't pay attention to that. And then we drink water mostly. About three liters of water a day is a good place to start. It should be your primary beverage. A little bit of caffeine every now and again from magic bean juice is fine, but that shouldn't be your primary beverage. It should be water, and we all know it. We just don't like the taste. So, Get something to put in your water that tastes better like Element or Noon or some of the other tablets you can put in there. Plants and animals, that's your diet. If you can't grow it or hunt it, you shouldn't have it on your plate 90% of the time. Plants would be anything you can grow in your garden. Animals, anything you can hunt. They should be local, seasonal, as organic as your pocketbook will allow. 
move your body a lot. A lot. Our ancestors moved 33,000 steps a day just to get you into this room. To wherever you're listening to this or watching this, to get you there, your ancestors moved 33,000 steps a day. And now the average American moves less than 3,000 steps a day. So move your meat suit on occasion, pick up heavy shit, sometimes run fast. But you need 10 to 15,000 steps a day, no matter what you're going to do. And then pick three or four days a week to put muscle mass on, to get bendy and flexible doing yoga, and to run really fast to get your cardiovascular system in check. And then the last thing is just sweat every damn day. Get a sauna. It's worth the money. Put it in your house. Sweat every day while you're meditating because that helps uh, helps with stress. Uh, or if you can't afford a sauna, three minutes in a cold shower every day. First thing in the morning, right? Take your regular shower and then finish cold for three minutes. That's it. It's not that much harder than that. I know that sounds like a lot, but there's so much stuff we're already doing and we're not doing the two magic words. And and, and I'll share that if you... Allow me to share the story real quick. Yeah. Uh, last year, I talked to a 78-year-old gentleman who told me he reversed his diabetes in six months. And I'm like, okay, things should go through your head when I say 78-year-old man. Number one, statistically speaking, he should be dead. Males only live to about 73 in this country. So he's five years past his expected lifespan already. Number two, he goes to his doctor with full-blown di- diabetes. Do you think his doctor told him to start exercising at 78? His doctor put him on three drugs. He said, well, I'm not taking these. I'm going to go back and do other things. Comes back six months later with no diabetes. I'm like, holy shit, what'd you do? And he goes, I started paying attention. Those are magic words. Pay attention because we know what to do. He said, we all know what to eat. We all know you're not supposed to drink as much as I was drinking. We all know you're supposed to exercise more. I just wasn't paying attention. All he did was clean some basic stuff up because he started paying attention. And in six months, his body said, oh, by the way, we don't have this sugar problem anymore. Thanks for making us more uh, able to hear the signal of insulin because of what he did with his food and with his movement patterns. So like the list sounds easy. And I always remind people it is if you live outside. If I shoved the average American back out into the woods where we started, they would all do the exact same thing I asked my executives to do today. Hang out in groups, make sure they're keeping you safe and that you feel valued in that community. There's no stress unless there's a bear wandering through. Go to bed when it's dark out. The only beverage ever served outside by nature for humans is water. That's the only thing she's ever been serving. And we don't drink enough. The food out there, the stuff you can hunt or plant or forage for, you're going to move a lot to do that. And sometimes you're going to sweat. Like it's easy when we go outside. We just yeah. need to mimic those things while we're safe in the cage. Yeah, I, I have like twenty more questions for you. Yeah, do we have to do? Yeah, we, we have to do. We're running out of time. I have to do part two. But I I have some questions that I ask all, all my guests. So uh, I'm going to ask you the same questions. But I just want to. Uh, I do this uh, in my presentations sometimes. I I say this. Uh, I display this quote from Voltaire. It says, "The art of medicine consists in amusing the patient." while nature cures the disease. And I'm just trying to just trying to let people understand that exactly the example you just gave, that's it. It's just being aware. You, yeah. you don't have to have a pill for everything. Just do the things. What Your list of things are common sense. And common sense just is not that common. <laughs> <laughs> I 
agree. We're, and we're not doing it because we live in the cage. We don't have to do it. I don't have to move today. And if I don't like the food in the fridge, I got one of these. I'll, I'll hit some buttons on this flat piece of black glass and somebody will bring me Indian food in North Dakota. Like that is just mind blowing. If I said that to somebody a hundred years ago, they would burn me as a witch. And I get to do that today right now. <laughs> I know. First of all, they'd ask me what a fridge is because those didn't exist. <laughs> right? Yeah. They have it's, something like this where you can just summon up food from the ether. Well, in the next five years, you're, all you have to do is actually think about it and it'll be right there. I'm going to uh, tell you, Elon Musk is going to make <laughs> us uh, able to advertise in one another's dreams and sleep is going to suck. Exactly. Neuralink, man. <laughs> Did you see the Tesla uh, beds? They no. Have? No. Oh, yeah. They have, yeah. They have, uh, he's making Tesla beds now. So Are they electric? Can, all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, powered by yes yeah, uh, semiconductor in uh, anyway um all right so uh please describe uh, your first experience with cannabis oh gosh um it was definitely weed um and i did not so len here's what i appreciate about knowing what i know now uh i do not react well to thc at all. It lasts forever in my body. There, there's a DNA test for that. I, I know. I know. And <laughs> you're the one that highlighted this for me. So it, it lasts forever in my body. And I just don't break it down because of the enzymes that, that are present in me. So I take a heroic hit of this Hawaiian Kush. And it was a hero's <laughs> inhale. Because everyone else was doing it. Why wouldn't I? Um and then I just kind of exhaled and I'm like, no, that was good. That was good. Pass that thing around. And I'm sitting there. I'm in my uh, late 30s. The first time, because oh, wow. I was the guy that's like, uh, you know, drug-free America. I'm an athlete. I, I'm not going to do drugs. Because I, I, I was unaware. I thought plants were drugs, yeah. right? Because I bought into all the bullshit propaganda that, that our government was telling us at the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm in my 30s doing this in a hotel room with some friends. And then all of a sudden, everything slowed down. Like, why is everything moving so slow? And then I spent six hours throwing up, hearing yeah. voices in other rooms and being super paranoid and thinking I was in another place. And so I got, you know, normally you don't get a lot of, a whole lot of psychoactive effect from smoking, but the way this guy metabolizes marijuana, whew, I was gone, gone and throwing up every 30, 45 minutes for six straight hours. That was my first experience. And I, I loved it because it was painful <laughs> and it brought me to a different place. And that to me was a powerful experience. Now, when I look at it, I know what to expect. I only eat it. I never smoke it because it's hard to get dosing right for me. So edibles for me are my favorite way to intake the psychoactive or the intoxicating part of the plant. Um, and I limit myself to five milligrams. And if I go past 10, I know I'm going to throw up for hours. I've done it before. I made brownies one time after that and watched myself vomiting from a different place. I don't know how that happened, but in my head, I was down looking at myself vomiting into a sink for a couple hours. Um, and, and so I've learned my lesson. I know to, to stay, stay low. And I know if I take five milligrams, I got about four hours of me weighing 900 pounds, not being able to move. <laughs> best, best muscle relaxation I've ever had. Now I'm experimenting with ultra low doses of that, plus uh, maybe a little Delta 8 with CBN. Best sleep you'll ever have in your life. So, yeah, that was my first. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, if you have 
you have to listen to five albums for one year. And by the way, I know this changes daily or whatever it is. Oh, no, and, it's and all the same for me. All right. Well, if you don't remember the album name or you can the, the artist, what would be those five albums that you're listening to for the next year? Yeah, just pick any Prince album and throw five of them in there. <laughs> yeah, including, including the including the black album uh including the black album even his uh his piano only one um oh gosh i can't remember the name it's one of my favorite albums of his it's just sitting right over there but i can't remember the name of it um uh and if it wasn't prince it'd be queen so those are for me and it, it i don't care i don't, i love some taylor swift stuff i'll admit it i'm a 52 year old male who's like t-swizzle is all that in a bag of chips uh, I'll listen to Taylor Swift all day long, especially her new album. I think she just nailed it. Beautiful, wonderful artist, very talented. Uh, but Prince is it for me. And maybe that's because when I was coming up, that was my first cassette tape I ever owned. I just said cassette tape. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, well, cassettes are back in now. I threw, yeah. When I was moving from Philly to LA, I threw out a trash bag of my cassettes. I still kept my CDs, I have thousands of them, but I What's threw them out. <laughs> coaster they make good coasters yeah they made art <laughs> um do you remember the very first concert you ever attended was yeah you guys don't judge me i know somebody's gonna hear this and go, <laughs> oh my god what a loser richard marks i think richard was brilliant, a, brilliant I, musician. a girl brought me when i was in college i'm like okay <laughs> So now I'm more of a music festival guy. If I like, I want the lights and the flashies and the bass booming and and you know the fun people around me dancing. So, so what was what was last concert you went? Is it EDM? Uh, kind of? It was uh, Shangri La. It was a music festival down in uh, South Dakota, Southern. Uh, I don't. I don't know if this is a relevant question for you. I ask everybody uh, anyway. But what has cannabis meant in your life? Oh gosh, it'll mean the second book. I mean, I've been studying the endogenous system for three years now and working on how to piece together this book in an intelligent manner so that uh, a layperson can read about this system because there just isn't good information for a layperson to read about the system. Uh, Unless for, you buy the book called Making Cannabis Personal. Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, that's a good book. Do you know what the <laughs> cover looks like at all? Uh, yeah, it's got a, a DNA <laughs> a molecule on it. Yeah. Some guy named Len May. <laughs> yeah, so... I think for me, it's what does it mean to me? I think it's good medicine from the earth. And we've been using it for since the dawn of humans. I mean, the system is in every mammal. It must be pretty important if it's in every mammal. Uh, so uh, for me, it's it's good plant medicine and a good way to nourish a system that's, it, that's in there. You're not going to change the fact that it's in there. If you can add nourishment to that system, we just, like I said, start that beautiful upward spiral of health or help us maintain an easier level at, at some of the things we're doing. Everything from mood to, to hunger is regulated by that system in some way, shape, or form. Love it. All right, final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, gosh. Tiny TV, a bed, and uh, lots of uh, swords and throwing stars. All right. So did you have the nope. uh, Velvet nope. Blue, Bruce Lee poster yeah, no, I, used I didn't have any posters my up. I think I might have had one. My brother had more posters and stuff. He had like uh, uh, Farrah Fawcett and some stuff up. And I didn't, I don't remember having any posters on the wall. Maybe if I did, it might have been one Bruce Lee thing. But other than that, you know, I grew up in a time of those, those shitty velvet paintings. 
uh, and somebody. So we're the same age. I'm 51, yeah. so I, I know yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly so I think, the time. I think there might have been one of those on the wall, if I remember right. I just remember by the time I was 13, it was all swords and throwing stars because that's yeah. just what we were doing at that time. Yeah. I, well, I used to I used to work for a place called Asian World of Martial Arts. Yeah, and we <laughs> we provided all the martial arts equipment. So my, that job, I had everything, and I would throw stars, and my parents come. And they, I messed up my whole closet wall because I would just like throw stars in there. So. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that talking? place very, very well. Yeah, we uh, stuff from them. Hey, Dan, first of all, I want to thank you for being an ambassador for Endocanalc for what you know, you're, you're make, recommending us to a lot of uh, people in, in your talk. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. Uh, where can people contact you, engage with you, hire you as a, as a coach, hire you for speaking engagements or just get more of your content. Yeah. DanMillerWellness.com. Super easy to find me. And all of my links are on there and all of the, I mean, and if you need more information on saunas or, or cold or you name it, I've got some stuff on there. Uh, I've got all of my podcasts are on the media page. Uh, there's a lot of fun stuff to listen to there. And Len, I got to say, I got to thank you for what you do because what you guys do in the DNA world is absolutely revolutionary for a lot of folks. And I've I've talked a lot of people just through some of the reports that they can see on on your DNA test. And I think it's very important that we understand how we're going to react to CBD or CBN or THC, especially in a world where this is. I mean, I think we're on a cusp. Kind of, it kind of feels like it might have felt uh, right after prohibition. Everything is coming back, and that's kind of how it feels with not only um, the. Uh, cannabis, but with some of the other plant medicines, we're starting to embrace a lot of those more. I know a lot of states have not only decriminalized, but also legalized some of the other plants. And I think we need to start as a culture embracing those almost like we did with alcohol. Only I would counsel folks, don't start so damn early if you're a teenager. Let's just wait. Let's wait till the brain is done cooking in there, and then we can experiment a little bit. And I think if we just stick with the non-intoxicating stuff, or if we're using uh, some of the other plants, maybe smaller doses, microdosing. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to get a community around this where there's education and there's rituals around some of these macrodosing uh, yeah. schedules that people are on. And I think that's important because it, I'll tell you, the accidental overdoses, I don't want to call them overdoses, but the accidental times where I've gone well over my threshold for THC have been some of the most transformative moments in my entire life. And they've stuck with me and changed who I am fundamentally as a person. And I think that's important that a lot of people understand that, yes, it can exacerbate psychosis. So can a night of drinking. It's about the same. Um, And then as long as we're in tune with ourselves and operating inside of our safety boundaries, I think it's I think it's really important that we walk over to the outside edge, not only physically, but I think in our heads as well. And I think the plants are one of the best ways to walk over there because they're going to, they're going to give you a gentle shove in that direction. I think that's important. So I appreciate what you guys are doing because they can, well, thank you. Yeah. Your test helped me understand why I get so sick when I take so much. Yeah. Well, With, now we're patented. Now we have a patent. So we're, the PTO support us and we're doing whole genome sequencing. So all the things that you talked about, the other plant medicines and uh, California has now got psilocybin in the ballot. So all that is going to be included. So we'll look at the entire uh, genome. And I love that. That's amazing. So. It's, ex- it's some exciting stuff coming up. Yeah. 
I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for yeah, joining thanks, thanks us. You. And we'll do we'll do a part two soon, and we'll go promote your book. As well. Yeah, whenever you're ready. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.